0: Now, if you could turn, please, to the little epistle of Jude. So, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all Delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh and set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers, defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak, e- and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment and all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ onto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Well, friends, we'll complete uh, this little uh, study of Jude this evening. It's taken longer than initially anticipated, even with the furious, necessary, and legitimate interruptions along the way. Uh, so this will be our final study in this important letter, uh, a letter which began with Jude praying for those uh, to whom he writes, and it ends with with a hymn that, that Jude fights those to whom he writes. To join in singing. Now obviously I'm not going to rehearse. The entire letter this evening. But we need to make sure that we understand. That Jude has alerted the church. To whom he writes. To the. Uh, he writes to warn them. About infiltrators. Who have established themselves in the congregations. And the warning that he signs for his day. You know, as you read even church history right up to the present time, it still remains uh, it 's supremely supremely relevant that uh, we always have to be on our guard. Uh, we all we always have to be watching uh, you know just because people talk about God in a compelling way or introduce sometimes intriguing notions or share their visions and their <laughs> dreams, uh, and do all that sometimes with an ur of passion and an nerve of spirituality uh, we must be constantly vigilant uh, and that's exactly what jude has been doing throughout this little epistle he has urged his readers and tonight we are his readers uh, to contend for the faith and then in verse 17 he says look keep yourselves in the love of god and as he draws this to a close he he reminds them and of course us That in the exercise of building themselves up in their most holy faith, God is keeping them. Same with ourselves. In the exercise of ourselves, you know, uh, building ourselves up in our most holy faith, God is keeping us. So as we uh, start to wrap things up, we conclude by considering uh, what we believe about God. Uh, and that's uh, theology, and how that theology informs our worship of God, which is uh, doxology, and how that worship then uh, directs how and why we share the gospel, which would be uh, missiology. So, theology. Well, well, theology obviously runs through the entire letter. Notice the opening phrase there of verse 25 where we're at tonight. To God our Saviour. He begins, he begin, uh, He ends how he began. To God our Saviour. Or as it says in the NIV or uh, ESV, uh, the only God our Saviour. Now the, the Jews understood monotheism. But the fact that God was one and God was three, uh, without division and without any cohesion that mingled the members of the Trinity, that was totally alien to them. Uh, So Judas establishing the fact, among all the sounds and the sights that would have surrounded the people in his day, there's only one God, yet that one God is three, and he is the only God. Now, that, of course, was a challenge for them. It's a challenge for us. You know, many of us can manage to get our head around the Trinity, like, uh, but in, in the world, there are many religions, each with their, their own God. And it's the same, it was the same back then. They, they had their own concept, their own idea of God. Uh, so for example, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6, he says to them, even if there are so-called gods (in inverted commas, obviously small g), even if there are uh, so-called gods in heaven or in earth, as there are many gods (as saying inverted commas) and many lords (in inverted commas), yet for us. There is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and our one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And this, as Jude reminds us in verse 25, in this, this is the only God. This only God is the Savior, coming to us in the person of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in order to To save us in order to redeem us. So what God the Father has planned, Christ the Son has procured. And God the Holy Spirit then applies to the lives of those who trust in him. It's this theology, this knowledge of God, when which he has revealed himself in the scriptures, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can't get our head around the Trinity, but it's revealed in the scripture. Uh, so we believe it and accept it. And this is the faith that Jude is very concerned. That his readers pay attention to and will be prepared to contend for. Contend for the faith, not simply faith. But contend for the faith. And as Jude comes to the end of this letter, it's like he's saying to those to whom he's been writing, to ourselves, do you realize how great God is? Do you realize how great our God is? Then sing with me. Great is our God. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. All that hath breath, all that have life and breath, come now with praises before him. Let the Amen (coughs) sound from his people again. And in order to help us in that, he provides four words which convey the splendor and the sovereignty of God. First of all, he says to the only God be glory. That's the first word. What is glory? Well, it's uh, found all over the Bible, but it's essentially, essentially this: it's the public, visible, acclaimed presence of God. It's the establishing of his of the of the presence of God in the in a moment of time, and amongst His people. Now just let me give you uh, four cross references to help establish this in your mind. You don't have to turn it to it, but you can take a note of it and uh, follow it yourself later. Uh, but Exodus uh, 24, 15 through 18. Uh, Moses goes up to the mountain, a cloud covers the mountain. You know it's Mount Sinai. And it says, Now the glory. Of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses, that is God, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud, went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Fascinatingly, uh, when you flick on just a couple of other chapters, a few other chapters in Exodus, Exodus 33 18 to 22, it says, Moses said to the Lord, Please show me your glory. Then the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass. Before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said you cannot see my face. For no one can see me and live. And the Lord said here. Here's a place by me. Uh, you, You shall stand on the rock. And it shall be while my glory passes by. That I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And if you follow on, you come right up to the book of Kings, First Kings, eight verses ten and eleven. As the ark of the covenant is being brought into the temple, and it came to pass, it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. My brethren and sisters, wouldn't you love to be present for an occasion like that? Amen. You, know, you know, just once. Just once, Lord. Would't it be wonderful to, to experience it where suddenly where suddenly the service stops, and we're just captivated with the presence of God, God comes down into our midst. And he manifests his presence, declaring his glory. Shifting our, our thinking entirely in His direction, what would it be like, you know, to experience that? Maybe we'll make that a matter of prayer tonight that God would so visit us on at least one occasion. But the fourth. Cross-reference reference takes us to the New Testament where there are a number that we could turn to just as there were in the uh, Old Testament. But John chapter 1, we find the amazing statement that you're often it's repeated and a number of times You know, in the New Testament. John 1 verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That's what John says. But we've seen it now. We've seen the glory as of uh, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jude, as he concludes this little epistle, he says, I want you to sing out about the glory of God. I want you to sing about this God who is so majestic. That's the second word, isn't it? his glory, his majesty. In other words, there are no rivals to his dignity. There are no rivals to his splendor. There's no one that can jump up in a moment of time and take on the challenge of the living God. Do you remember just over, um, wasn't it just over a year ago, uh, last September, the opening hymn of uh, the, the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the day thou givest, Lord, is ended. In the last verse, so be it, Lord. Thy throne shall never, like earth's proud empires, pass away. Thy kingdom stands and grows forever till all thy creatures own thy sway. QE2 was the longest serving monarch. But when she closed her eyes in death, she said to God, Your Majesty. He was the only one that she had occasion to address in that way. Your majesty. You see what you're is saying here? Glory, majesty, dominion. Dominion over all the earth. And you look around you and you see what's happening in the world and you say to yourself, doesn't look like much of a dominion at the moment. Doesn't uh, seem that the Lord, God omnipotent, reigns. But the Bible says it is, it is so. God reigns. And we trust his word, don't we? And not only you know, glory, majesty, dominion, but power. Or authority. The power and authority to do whatever he wills in heaven and on earth. His authority over all of his creation. His authority In the exercises, Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, according to the counsel of his will, so that for those who love him, the things unfold according to his plan. They unfold according to his plan because he has power, because he's authority, because it's his dominion. And notice that all of this is unbounded by time. Verse 25, both now and forever. Or as it says in the ESV, before all time and now and forever. Or the NIV, before all ages, now and forevermore. You see, there can be, this can be true of no one and can be true of nothing else other than the only true and living God. So let this thought settle in your mind, for a moment, it's truly amazing. Because philosophy, mathematics, science, logic, language itself—if you think about any of those things, all of those things—you know, with the progress of time, they all—they're all inevitably superseded. You know, people once thought about the world in a certain way, and people will say, "Well, that's a long time ago in the past. They thought like that." People say, we've moved on. You know, it's all superseded. All that that happened in the past, it's superseded. And part of the problem is that people want to apply that same logic to the eternal God. You know, they once thought about God in this way. But, you know, we've moved on. And we need to think about God in this way you know, that he accepts people in same-sex relationships. He accepts that people are gender confused. Because we used to think that God created all things, but now we know that he didn't. It's all random process and chance. And as a result of it being random process and chance, there are genetic genetic mistakes, people in the wrong body, so we have to move on. And that's That's their argument. They start to apply that thinking about that was the end, but we've moved on to God and try to bring God down to to our level. They want to apply the same logic to the eternal God and all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his dominion and all of his authority. But God the creator is completely independent of his creation. And that's the fallacy of our contemporary, you know, preoccupation with climate and earth, etc. Which is basically pantheistic on the whole. You know, that somehow or another, God and his creation are mingled together. Therefore, our care of the earth is a care of God. It's pantheism. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, God stands... Outside of time, God stands independent of his creation. He shapes it. It does not shape him. It's our knowledge of him then that shapes our praise, which is doxology. Doxa is the Greek for glory, hence doxology. And hymn writers have often been able to encapsulate for us large areas of theological truth about God and his glory and his power and so on. And they've often done so in a way that even allows little children to learn of God's greatness in spite of their smallness. Uh, Horatio, Horatius Bonner, the lesser known brother of Andrew, there were three brothers: uh, uh, Andrew, John, and Horatius. Um, Andrew is probably the most well-known one. But uh, Horatius Bonner was ordained to the Free Church of Scotland, um, which is a psalms was psalms only church, only sang metrical psalms. But before he was ordained uh, to the Free Church of Scotland. He taught Sunday school. And when he taught Sunday school, he wrote hymns because he decided that some of the tunes might be better and the words might be clearer. He wrote uh, some several hundred hymns, one of which really challenges the way people come to God in worship. How do people usually come to God in worship? Well, thinking about themselves. They're usually preoccupied with themselves, wondering what this is going to mean to them. It's all about, about them. And that question is an entire, entirely the wrong question. The question is what will this mean to God? Will God be happy with this? Will God be pleased with this? Will God accept this? Will it be a declaration of His glory? His majesty, his dominion, his authority. And Bonner wrote a hymn that begins, Not what I am, O Lord, but what thy art. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that's always a starting point, friends. Okay, we, we, we know something of the greatness of God, and you look at the theology surrounding God and his majesty, etc. And that should lead to praise, that should read, lead to the Doxology. And it always, always starts with God. Not what I am, but what you are. Tis what I know of thee, my Lord and God, that fills my soul with praise. And my lips with song. You see, there is a direct correlation between what engages our minds will then stir our hearts And our wills. And so the hymn writer says, let's start where we need to start. It's all about Almighty God, his glory, his majesty, his dominion, his power, and so on. It's not about me. And so may God help us in this regard. Now, of course, in the Bible, uh, he has given us... uh, a hymn book, which comprises some 150 songs in the Book of Psalms, and they encourage us to uh, ascribe praise to God. Yeah, yeah, obviously, we cannot add to the divine glory. You know, some psalms talk about you know give unto the Lord. Uh, probably, ascribe would be a, a better word because we cannot increase any sense of, uh, you know, God's inherent glory. We ascribe to the Lord. We're not giving him glory. Uh, He is glory. We're ascribing glory. We're saying, you are glory. You are all glorious. It's worth noting, I guess, and pointing out that when it comes to our praise, we do not uh, structure, shouldn't structure our times of praise for for unbelievers, or to appeal to you know our likes and dislikes. You know the average person coming in off the street doesn't know what we're singing about because they don't know our King, they don't know our Savior. And you say, well, Billy, well, don't you want them to know? Of course we do. Of course we want them to know our King. Of course we know. We want them to know our saviour. And as I pointed out, on other occasions, people ask the right question about, uh, about you know, how do you reach these people? But then they come up with the wrong answer and say, well, you know, because they don't understand what we're singing about, let's make it more like the world. Let's make it more attractive to them so that when they come in, it's something they understand. But that's the wrong approach. We want we want to sing of our King, our Redeemer. And you say, well, what about the person who's come in off the street that doesn't know? Well, I'll tell you how they will come to know. They will come to know when they hear us singing it and meaning it. I obviously. You know that is probably for another time, but obviously the, the tune I think obviously plays a big part. You know there are there are words. This is this is what I found with the old old Christian hymns which we used to sing, use in our, our church at Orangefield Baptist in Belfast. The words were tremendous, but the tunes were. were we're like a funeral, like a dirge. And yeah, you know what? Maybe it's just me impersonal here. Like, but I think you can sing hymns, or you can you can look at hymns, and the words just stir your heart until you start singing them, and it's the tune has killed it. And so, I say that's probably a discussion for another time. Um. But yes, we want to sing from the heart about our King, about Jesus. So that when the on do come in and they're listening, they're able to say that these people know this King. This, These people know this Redeemer. So it's for this reason, beloved, that we honour God's name, that we Treat God's name with reverence, obviously. We worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We bow before Him, His glory proclaim. And in doing so, that making his, His glory known, proclaiming His glory, leads us inevitably to missiology. Well, what's that? It's just a fancy word for mission. Leads us to want to fulfill the great commission. To go into the whole world. And tell sinners. About Jesus. That's our mission isn't it? That's why he's called us isn't it? You know, in a sentence he, he says. "You know, Your ultimate goal in evangelism. Is, is the glory of God. Go and make my glory known. And you say Billy. I thought the ultimate aim in evangelism was to get as many people saved as you possibly could. I say, no, the ultimate goal of evangelism is God's glory. We want God to be glorified. God who created a world in which both the wrath and mercy and, and his mercy would be displayed. You know, every one of us is a missionary. To go forth and tell. And it's certainly our theology. Which must drive the mission. A theology of a God who is majestic. A God who is. As we'll be seeing on Sunday week. A God who is so gentle. So compassionate. And so merciful. And bid sinners come to himself. Because his. His yoke is easy. And So. As I say, it took longer than expected to do this little study in Jude, but I pray that uh, this evening, in spite of the interruptions, that it's been a blessing uh, to yourselves.